Riley Perez, the author of What is Real? The Life and Crimes of Darnell Riley. We are on the Rare Bird Podcast with William Searles, the author of the soon-to-be-released book, The Crown Lord. November 13th is the official publication date. How are you, William? Doing great, Riley. How you doing, bud? Pretty good. Uh, great catching up with you. We haven't chatted in a while, but um, definitely interested in diving into the Crown Lord. Uh, there's one quote that that stands out to me, uh, a review by Louis Gossett Jr. Mm-hmm. of the Crown Lord. And uh, it goes, besides being a boldly written political thriller, is an important reflection on the genesis of racial animus in America. William Searles has created a new optic on prejudice and bigotry and the relationship to power. I think that sums it up. <laughs> uh, it sums it up, and it's like anyone else adding something to it is, you know, it's, it's what we would want, but uh, it, that definitely sums it up. So, I mean, you've worked with Louis Gossett Jr. on the adaptation of your of your first novel, The Reason. How was it working with him? Lou is uh, absolutely phenomenal. You know, as, uh, as an author, whenever you have a, a book turned into a movie, I think it, several emotions go through your mind, going from terrifying all the way up to, to being amazed. And I could not have been happier with the, the cast of the movie, and the job they did to bring the characters to life. And we've got an Academy Award winner, uh, like Lou leading the way. It just makes things so much easier. It's just a joy to work with. Um, just, we're still friends. We speak frequently. He's just a, just a great human being. Oh, just a great guy. Right. So, so giving the crown lord to Lou to read uh, with the, the racial undertones, the racial story that mm-hmm. is being told, uh, I mean, his reaction, you know, his, his words speak for it. But did you guys have any personal conversations that uh, that weren't covered in his his review? Um, yeah, we've talked quite a bit, quite a bit about it. In fact, that he's got a copy of the screenplay we're showing around uh, to some different people right now. And my primary goal writing the Crown Lord, you know, being a, a white boy, white collar criminal, and having a black or African American uh, drug dealer, inner city drug dealer from Pittsburgh, it's kind of culture shock. You know, for me, being a, a spoiled, privileged kind of guy. And when we first met, it was like, it was as if the society had already taught us that we had nothing in common. And you're probably aware of this. The more time you spend with someone, regardless of their color, you really end up, particularly in prison, almost like a captive audience, um, you really get to a point in some circumstances where you're almost colorblind. It doesn't matter what color something is. Promised my my bunkie that if I ever made it out, made it as an author, I would do my best to put the racial shoe on the other foot, because through him, you know, I realized that you know any type of racism or being uncomfortable with with someone that's different than you is just pure ignorance. It's, it's something I, that I think people people learn, and if it's something that can be learned, it's something that can be unlearned. And through this this gentleman, his name was Eric, I had learned that though white people and black people live in the same country. Uh, we really live in different worlds. And as I put this story together, really what I did, I created a, a book that is like a Jim Crow South where whites are the minority. And I shared that with Lou 
And once again, it's, it's impossible for white men to understand the oppression black people have experienced in this country. I did my best, and I kind of used Lou as a sounding board. Um, you know, Lou's been around. He's got a lot of great stories. Just a, a fascinating guy. And uh, he was pleased that the story came out. So, good question. Right. Uh, well, you go ahead, and then I'll, I'll, I'll double back to you on uh, a, a question about Eric. Oh, go, go ahead, Tony. Go ahead. Oh, I'll take it then. Eric, I know you say he was your bunkmate when you first went into the federal prison system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and upon you being released, you, you, you tried to find him. I did. Yep, good question. Um, I, uh, you know, as you're aware of, uh, I'm not sure on the state side, but the federal side, former bad guys are kind of prohibited from being in touch with each other. And it was a right. few years before we were allowed to get in touch. And I had a little bit of success out of my first couple books. And um, I decided, you know, my time had passed where I could get a hold of someone. And I, the first thing I saw when I looked him up was a story about a gentleman uh, that was had been murdered. And that kind of inspired me um, to get going on the story. And at the same time, my first two books are, are Christian-based books. And this was my, my uh, break into the secular audience. And as I said, you know, based on early reviews, we're pretty happy with the, with the message we got across. And, you know, the, it's impossible to make a significant change with everyone at once. Hopefully we can get one person at a time uh, that's uncomfortable with people of, you know, simply because they got a different skin color. Hopefully to get them to start looking at things a little bit differently. So, but uh, you and I, you know, we met at the Rare Bird Party at your house, which is a phenomenal house, by the way. And uh, I was fortunate to grab an advanced reader copy of your book. Once again, what is, what is real life and finds of Sean O'Reilly. And it's funny, it's a great title. It, the book was, I found it to be blatantly honest. And in terms of what is real, you ever find yourself looking back and asking yourself, did I, did that really happen or did I really do that? <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was, that was a theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you can imagine what you would know right. that that question would pop up at most odd times. I agree. Yeah, you could be walking in the yard and you would think, what am I doing here? Uh, There could be certain other, uh, a night where it's raining and you think, wow, I used to be, you know, I I would do this when it would rain when I was free. I would, you know, you'd have those conversations and then all of the the conversations about what I'm going to do once I'm out, you know, so those would be moments where you say, uh, I mean, even looking at something on, on the news, some po- politics, and you say, well, I can do it much better, or, or when I get out, I'll do this, you know. And, and mm-hmm. that being a conversation you have with Eric, you know, mm-hmm. when I get out of with, with whatever power I have, I'm going to try to make it as a writer right. and uh, shed some light on the racial divide. So, I mean, you know, you, you've had those conversations just like I did, and many times where you look up and I, I'd look up and Two years have gone by, and you know, then something will hit me, and I'd say, "Oh man, I got another four or five years left." Right. You know, take that breath, but you know, you you try to stay as present as possible in that world, and you know, living in reverse with the memories of what you used to have in life. Absolutely. That could, so you know, you tuck it away and get back to living in that moment. I haven't, I read your book a few months back. You were down about 10 years, right? Nine, 10 years? Uh, nine years, one month, yeah. Isn't time, we, I, let me 
spending time in prison, it's, it's like, you'll understand what I'm saying about this. It seems like you have weeks that felt like days, and you have days that felt like weeks. Isn't time, the concept of time, how it plays on your mind, isn't it really weird in prison? So that's a fair statement? Very fair. You know, it, it would mm-hmm. be, yeah. you, you'd look up one day and uh, several weeks have passed, a couple of yeah. months, and then oh, some days just seem to drag on forever where, you know, you, you, thankfully there's not a riot going on. No one's been assaulted. So it's just the, the boredom of the, the daily life of counting off the next hour to the next count. Mm-hmm. Uh, next hour, you get to go to child and you come back and it's like, can, can we hurry up and have lights out so we can cross this day off the calendar? How about, how about the last week? How long did that take? It felt like it take. Remember you about a week to go? Yeah, well, ha- having prepared for that exit right. for nine years, mm-hmm. then coming to that last week, uh, and, you know, in, in state prison, they take you out of your, whatever your assignment, job assignment, school assignment, they take you out the last 20 days. Uh, that's so you can have your last bit of physical me- medical checks and all sorts of things. And that's when it starts hitting you a little bit more that you are close. You start mm-hmm. watching your company. A little bit closer, you know, uh, your interactions. If, uh, thankfully, I had no addictions. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't gambling. I didn't have any drug debt. So uh, those could be things that someone who may have a little bit longer to go, who sees that you're close to the gate, and yeah. remember, he still owes me five bucks. You know, mm-hmm. that could be that moment that he could pick a pick a little beef with you. You know, do you ever have any dreams that you're back in? Uh, not back in, not, not in a dream state, but I've, I've had moments where I've thought about uh, as as chaotic as it can be, there is structure. And as odd as the rules may be that the inmates place on each other, you know that those rules allow the, the ball to dribble down the court. Um, so we could easily come in and, and switch up the rules and have a whole new set of rules. And, you know, the game would be played out in a different format, in a different way. But with the current rules that inmates place on each other, uh, the ball is going down court as it should. You know what's going to happen day in and day out. You're mm-hmm. out here in society and you should know this, Dylan, with the entertainment industry where you're expecting a phone call because it's, the guy said he's going to call today. Mm-hmm. He doesn't call. The email doesn't get returned. You know, and you would you would be okay with it if someone just followed up with an email and say, hey, I won't be able to make the call today. I won't be able to do this. Right. You know, you hold the person to their word foolishly and you get upset that someone doesn't respect your time as much as you respect theirs. So, mm-hmm. you know, moments like that where you say, you know, the rules inside, you you would be called on that. You would be held to a, a much higher standard of your word actually is your bond to where in free society, you know, we, we can't walk around with a with a club just <laughs> right. you know, club clubbing entertainment execs because they didn't return your call, you know. Yeah, I think one thing most of us experience when you get out of prison, obviously you're gonna have, you know, those that love you understand people make mistakes. Uh, and at the same time you're gonna have people though that uh, look at you differently when you come out. But I, 
through reading your book, I'm sure you kind of feel the same way, but for me, you know, going to prison is almost one of the best things that ever happened to me. It's for me talking about it, you know, talking about my crime, talking about my, my time in jail is almost therapeutic. And it's almost like you're, you have this chance to get all the skeletons out of your closet, like clean your conscience, which is a very liberating feeling. I talk about mine, but you wrote about yours. Did you write the book for you as a sort of a soul cleansing thing for others, or would you say as a kind of a combination of both? I'd say a combination because, uh, as you see, uh, it initially started off for me just a diary, somewhat of a diary where I'm just, I see different events playing out mm-hmm. uh, and I jot it down so I can refer back to it. I'm still living in that moment. So different things would come and I'd jot it down. Uh, I'd look back over a year and, you know, you realize what you've compiled. Um, so it was somewhat therapeutic in that I knew that someone would get something out of it. Uh, in that, you know, you, you see this moment where it's, we're in a hyper violent society inside of prison and yet you have those little moments where uh, one story in particular where there was this Brutus type character who was he and his crew were walking around jamming guys up and looking for anyone who might be an enemy of their gangs uh, they had the numbers so they were the, they were the the tough guys on the block so to speak but eventually that guy who was the leader of the pack he tried to commit suicide and I was in a dorm environment at that time. So I was woken out of my sleep because of screams from the other inmates. Uh, you know, that universal call in prison, man down. Uh, everyone knows that that's, you know, uh, that's not a joke. You don't play around with those words because that's for the inmates and the officers to know that, you know, there's a real problem and it's, it's not mediated by, uh, by an assault. You know, this is uh, someone's in danger. You know, we look up and we see the guy hanging from his the noose he had made. But I look over and I see the guys that are helping him. You know, black guy, Hispanic guy. So this was nothing about gang association, racial divide. This was just two humans trying to help their fellow man who's in danger. Mm-hmm. You know, and the officers that responded, they wouldn't come inside the gate uh, until the inmates left uh, left that. That section, they didn't know if the officers didn't know if there was going to be an attack, a setup attack. But the inmates wouldn't leave the guy as they were working on him uh, with mouth-to-mouth resuscitation because they they didn't have any uh, confidence that the officers would actually uh, take up the charge and continue with the CPR. So the inmates just stayed until they saw that his his color came back to him. Uh, you know, so that that presence of mind to know where they were that they are in a prison environment. But even in a prison environment, I still can be human. I can still show my compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's many moments like that that would make you, uh, you know, say, okay, well, maybe we can build on that and, you know, have more peaceful interaction uh, on a daily basis. But, you know, everyone has their own agenda. And soon after that, your 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 motives for maintaining power take over that moment of peace that, that we have. Mm-hmm. 
you, uh, are you still in touch with anybody? I mean, obviously we've got to pay attention to who we hang out with, but I'm still in touch with a few guys from where I was at, and it's surprising how many guys are dead and how many guys are back in jail. Are you, are you still in touch with any of these guys, or have you just shut that chapter of your life down? Yeah. Um, so same rules in the federal system apply in the state system in that you're not, while on parole or probation, you're not supposed to have contact with mm -hmm. uh, known criminals or guys that are on parole. So, uh, the guys that I have interaction with, they're all off parole for many years. Several of them have, have supported me, uh, at book signings and book readings. Right. So, uh, but you, you know, going in who, while you're in, you know who it is that you right. would associate with outside of that system. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're not just walking around picking up stray dogs right, right, and right. saying, I'm going to take this guy home with me. You know, you fill guys out after a while. And, and as you know, guys that are in there trying to work the angles, mm -hmm. involved in gambling, involved in the drugs, you know that's pretty much what they'll be doing when they get out. So the interaction is, is kept to – well, it was kept to a minimum for me because, you know, this guy's who he is and he makes no apologies about it. So I'll have to take him on his word. What, what do you guys use for currency? You and everything. bars and actual uh, uh, cash transfers. You know, with all the advances in technology. Oh yeah. And, you know, the different cash apps and all sorts of things exist. We use postage stamps and bags of fish. It was, uh, I spent yeah. my time between two different places. We actually had a, a bookie. And I split my time between two different places. I said, we had a bookie um, that supposedly had $120,000 in postage stamps <laughs> somewhere in one of the warehouses. I thought that was amazing. But yeah, yeah. I just, they work something out with the CEO. And you know, I'm not sure. You guys call COs, COs, and the, what did you guys call the guards? Yeah. Okay. COs, guards, hacks, bulls. You, you yeah. know about the postage stamps. This, this was a bit of a, uh, a view of how the wider society evolved. So postage stamps were a big currency when I had first went in in 2005, mm -hmm. but around 2008, cell phones were becoming like commonplace mm -hmm. in the California prison system, mm -hmm. uh, you know, completely illegal and all. But you saw less mail being sent out because guys had access to phones. Oh, that's right. Right, right, right. So yeah. the mail actually decreased. J just how you know, in, in modern society, uh, mail has decreased as far as letter writing. We have emails. We have, you know, I pick up the phone and call you without mm -hmm. the old school mobile data plans where you're paying a buck just to get the call to go. Right. So it, it was interesting for me to have, you know, went through that transition inside and seeing how postage stamps kind of got faded out of being part of the currency, but definitely uh, packs, pouches of uh, fish are always uh, a good item to transfer. You know, obviously I think COs have a, can play, can play a role in how, how much of that stuff, you know, can, can move around. But, you know, I don't think we should talk about, uh, I can't remember the name, uh, Chavez? Chavez. Yeah, we probably, yes. talk, we probably shouldn't talk about her on this podcast, but you you find some COs to be really cool 
and others that were clearly the type that were picked on their whole lives that took the job knowing they could play tough without too much retaliation? Yeah, you know, everyone's represented in there. You know, I, I've seen guys that COs that were um, that had went to law school that uh, had worked in engineering. Uh, some that they were just lifelong, you know, family tradition. I'm going to be a CO. My dad was a CO. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, most of the prisons are in rural areas. Uh, there are, you know, very few that are in metropolitan areas. So mm-hmm. you get you get a representation of of that area. Right. You know, every now and then you'll see a CO who moved from the big city to that area because that's where the the job is located. But I want to I want to pivot back to the, the crown lord. The conversations that will happen, you know, with this this plot of roles being re- racial roles being reversed. So you, you chose eighteen forty six. Um I set I set the uh the story is set up um where there was an invasion that happens back in eighteen forty six. So really what's happening is about a five page prologue that shows this invasion happening from an advanced African country that frees the blacks, enslaves the whites, and then the book takes off modern day. Except as I mentioned earlier, it's uh, the roles are reversed. It's like a Jim Crow South where whites are the minority. And really, what I, at the end of the day, my my whole point in the story is to prove, or not to prove, but to point out how nasty you know people have been to each other. Um, primarily, um, you know the role that, that whites and blacks have played. Based on early reviews, I think we got. Got the message across. I'm pretty excited about. So, when uh, and then the story in modern day is set. Seventeen year old kid whose uh, father, civil rights attorney. The main character of the story is a seventeen year old kid named Willie Gibbons. He's from the South. He's a black kid. He's, his dad is uh, the powerful attorney in the country. And no one can understand why his father decided to go up to Detroit, where racial tension higher in the North. We couldn't understand why he chose to defend a white man who killed a black guy with an all-black jury and a black judge, which basically means, you know, similar to 50 years ago, wouldn't want to roll the reverse that he's going to be guilty. But when they roll up to the to the courthouse and this kid, he right outside the the, the courthouse steps, he sees a, a black supremacist group known as the Crown. That is where the they're all decked out in their purple robes, purple hoods, and and they're protesting this lawyer defending a white guy. And the verdict comes in. I'm not giving too much of the story. The verdict comes in. Obviously, the, the white guy's found guilty. And the black lawyer, Willie's father, gets killed. And he ends up spending time in Michigan. And as he tries to get to the bottom of who killed his father and what happened, it's quite grateful questions that happen throughout the story. Uh, a lot of long, buried secrets amongst his family and and other things in the town kind of come unearthed, and uh, it's kind of a coming-of-age story. All of his pre- preconceived notions about race and racism are wrong. Again, I, I believe in my experience in hell. Um, I, don't, I don't think I've ever been called a racist, but I, I think a lot of people are naturally, I don't want to say threatened, or just are curious about people that are different than them, even if it's different color clothes or different color carpet. Unfortunate how many people have preconceived notions or have learned things about people of different color. And uh, again, I believe they can be unlearned. And I, I think that's what I try to do with women. Right. 
So Willie's dad is is he the Addis Atticus Finch type of um, civil sort rights? Of, sort of. Yeah, I can't get too much into Willie's dad because he's, he's <laughs> he goes he goes a little farther into the story than, than most people think. But uh, it's funny. I love Atticus Finch. It's his former time. But uh, that's a good question. But, well, I def I mean, I I can imagine it's gonna definitely uh, cause some. Uh, some conversations to be had. Uh, I mean, we live in a time right now where uh, I mean, there's some controversy that I don't necessarily uh, agree with. And then you hear in reply from someone, but, you know, you are a minority. You should. Well, that, that's where we should stop. I am <laughs> a human. OK, I'm an American. Uh, this and that. I, I should be able to say uh this is my position on this without, oh, but you're a minority. You right. should, right, right, right. you know, these are the conversations that are going on. Like we have Kanye West in particular, who's uh, awesome controversy because he, I guess, as a hip hop guy should toe this particular line. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, does the crown Lord have those themes popping up where it's, you know, you have this, I, I go back to Atticus Finch. <laughs> yeah, this Atticus Finch type lawyer who's uh, who's not towing the line in that in that day and age um, with the Crown Lord Klansman group. Yeah, I think I think the biggest difference between right now and fifty years ago. I mean, the, the, my book is set up modern day. Like I said, the mentality is like a nineteen fifties, sixties, forties, fifties, sixties. Deep South. And I think a, a big difference between then and now is I, I think that people are allowed or even given different, different platforms to share their beliefs. Whereas a long time ago, you know, if I said 50, 60 years ago, they couldn't do that as much. Um, so in my book, you don't see like a white version of Kanye coming out and saying something really crosses more of the, the brutality, this is the plain brutality that people have experienced. Um, right. And yeah, and I'm at, uh, I've been a little out of touch with the news lately. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I get ready for the book to come out. But nevertheless, we, uh, our, our model is, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of thought. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, and I'm all for that for anyone. There isn't like a, uh, you're white, you should have this view. You're black, you should have this view. And, right, right, right. and I experienced that a lot in prison in that there would be guys that were, you know, you're Caucasian. You you have no say in the matter. So you're in this oh, right. group. Right. But with, within that group, you have uh, Nazi lowriders. You have guys who are aligned in thought and in action with the Aryan Brotherhood. Then you have guys that are just, you know, I'm just white. This is where I have to be. I have no say in the matter. And you'd see the pain that, those guys would go through when, when there was conflict, you know, stirring. And it's like, I'm just here. You know, if I could, you know, if I had the numbers, if I had the ability, I'd walk off of this because this has nothing to do with me at all. My thought process are not aligned with these guys. I just happen to be white, you know, and and I'd actually, you know, you could feel some pain because it's like, 
this guy doesn't want to be a part of this. You know, you see the same thing in each in every other group as well. The Hispanics mm -hmm. uh, right. with 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 the black inmates, and you you'd say, you know, at, at what point can these guys be individuals? You know, Correct. It's like they're made. To, you're made to be in the group. You can't step out of the group, even though you don't care anything for it. So then you're in an impossible position, and you you just fall in line and defend the group. Correct. You know, it's interesting when you for, this is similar for everybody. Whenever you see a new guy come in, white guys will go to the white guys, Hispanic guys go to the Hispanic guys, black guys will go to the black guys. And I, it's a question I got to ask you. I mean, I was in the lower security end of USP Hazleton, which is where Whitey Bulger, the guy from Johnny Depp's Black Mass movie, he was just killed literally the day after he was transferred. And I was, yeah. on, lands I was on landscaping duty a couple times, and I'd have to go up and weed whack around, you know, the, you know, the shoot. We called them 23 and 1. These are the Al Qaeda guys or some of the Air Nation guys. Or, these guys just spend 23 hours a day in the cell, and they come up for one hour a day to walk around or do whatever they would do. You get to see in their eyes, you know, some of these guys are serving a dozen life sentences that, you know, I don't know if evil is the word I want to use, but it's something like that. Uh, with that said, you know, I'm thinking for some people, just being in the same state as Charles Manson, but what was it like being around him? And I don't want to give him any glory by using the word charismatic. But I've read a lot of things where people say, despite how long he's been down or was down, he was still surprisingly charismatic. Is that true? Uh, no, he looked like a uh, he looked like a sad old man who was still holding on to what what we knew of him or what we've been told of him. Mm -hmm. from 40 years ago. He looked like the old drunk who sits outside the liquor store asking for change. You know, his, his outreach to me was part of it was that, okay, I was, I was thrown into the unit where it was where for guys that have high profile cases. Maybe the guitar or something. Yeah. Well, that's, that's how he started his interaction. With oh, so he's walking the halls. So he doesn't know if I'm going to be in this unit going forward. So he's, he, his outreach to me was more or less trying to uh, see if I'm going to be a threat to him. Mm -hmm. uh, him leaving uh, some, a starter package of deodorant and toothpaste oh, for God. me. That's yeah. his outreach. Say, hey, I'm, I'm not a threat. I'm just an old guy here. But, and, you know, as time went on, he asked these questions that had no connection to anything, any conversation oh, yeah. that we had. So you you can see that he's trying to keep you off off balance. You know, uh, playing yeah. the I'm the wild crazy guy role. But right. you have to imagine after forty, fifty years of solitary living, uh, yeah, you, be you might have to question your sanity anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll leave the building pretty soon. Yeah, you graded on a scale, you know, on a sliding scale, rather. You, uh, another question I want to ask. I've, I've met a few guys like this. Did you meet many guys in prison, or to them it was almost like an honor to be there, or like the ultimate final stop, like, hey, I made it? Yeah, what made uh, you think of that? Enough, yeah, oddly enough, you find that in the gang culture, you you know, going into the gang culture, you know that part of it is uh, prison is a natural extension mm -hmm. because you, you didn't join the Boy Scouts. You joined uh, a street gang whose 
you know, goal is to maintain control of a neighborhood, to, uh, to wrestle control of the drug trade. Okay, so our whole goal is criminally motivated. So we're going to go to prison at some point. Mm-hmm. And you'd, you'd hear stories of, you know, yeah, that guy there, he's such and such. And being from Los Angeles growing up in L.A. and knowing about a lot of the gang wars that went on in the 80s and early 90s in L.A., uh, there were a couple guys on the yard that had a reputation for certain crimes that had made you know, made the news. So there was a bit of, yeah, that's that guy. Um, but, you know, it's a lot of guys in there who just want to live. You know, how can I get out of here? Mm-hmm. There's that, you know, large portion that is, you know, all about the gang life and how can I forward my, my status. But then there's that group that, yeah, I made a mistake. I was a criminal. I committed a crime and now I'm in here. How can I get to the next stage and, and get out of here? Right. Uh, so, you know, a lot of guys who just, yeah, I'm a criminal and now we have to abide by the rules of the gang. Uh, I didn't join a gang when I was in free society. So now I have to abide by the rules. You know, so there's that, there's that gray area of, can I just be a criminal who's serving my time? You know, mm-hmm. can I just be a man. Makes sense. Well, I think we have gone over our time. We possibly have, but it has been greatly enlightening. I'm looking forward to getting through the entire book, The Crown Board, November 13th, official publication date. Congratulations again, and hopefully we'll see this one on film as well. Huh? Um, great, man. Riley, I'll see you soon, bud. Thank you. Have a good one.